Okay, I got a question for the, uh, the history or music history buffs here this morning. There's this relatively obscure British band called the Beatles. You might, you might have heard of them, but uh, what was their debut song? Uh, according to Google, it's close, but it's called Love Me Do. Love Me Do. Love, love me do. You know I love... Sorry, I'll stop. Uh, no, I'm not going to keep going. I have, uh, and it's actually their first song on their number one album, and I know that because I got it as a gift for Christmas one of the years, and love. Love is a great topic, isn't it? Who doesn't like to talk about love? But it's a pretty big topic, and I don't want to be here... Well, I would be fine being here all day, but I don't know if all of you want to be here all day listening to me, but... Love is so huge that I, I want to focus this morning instead of all of the different uh, possible aspects of love. What is the biblical definition of love? And in a little bit, we'll be digging into the love chapter of the Bible. It's one of the most famous passages of the Bible. It's quoted at wedding after wedding after wedding. Uh, wives quote it to their husbands after a, a disagreement. It's one of these things that, uh, that's so important to talk about. It's plastered on signs, uh, these verses, all over Pinterest boards, Instagram. It's a very quotable book of the Bible. It's a very quotable chapter of the Bible, I should say. But before we get too far into uh, love, I want to stop and help us consider for a moment. When you hear the word love, what do you think of? Just in your own head, just what do you, what do you think of when you hear the love? Do you think of maybe an emotion? Do you think of a feeling? Do you think of a person? Is it warm and fuzzy? Maybe you think about someone who's close to you. Maybe you think about a child, a grandchild, a great-grandchild, if you're so blessed, a dear friend, maybe family members, maybe even pain comes to mind when you think about love. But love is such an interesting topic because it's greatly sought after. Everyone seeks after love. Our whole culture has economized love and the pursuit of love, and yet it's so sought after but so rarely understood. True love is, is uh, a topic that is used. There's a this show on Netflix called Once, and it's just fascinated with true love's kiss. It's so Disney-fied, it's so uh, popularized, it's, it's almost silly, but the, it's such an interesting topic because uh, we've pursued it. We've spent billions of dollars, millions of dollars after it, and there's actually a Harvard study that was done over 80 years trying to determine the effects on people's lives of what they're growing up is. It was originally a, an investment of only several thousand dollars, and it became millions and millions of dollars. John F. Kennedy was involved with this study, and essentially, they boiled down the people that actually uh, experienced love, that had uh, love as a child, as, as they were growing up. They, they had a marriage that they felt loved. They were loved. They were more successful and more happy. And the, the study actually determined happiness equals love. And uh, the author, Mark Batterson, uh, he, he quoted this down to say that the source of love the source of everything is God. God is love. And so that is the source of all of this, of no matter what. But love is sought after, but 
understood by so few. And the misunderstanding even is shown clearly in the dictionary. It's a great place to go. You can Google definition of. And the Webster's Dictionary, their first and, and uh, therefore the most likely definition, is that love is a strong affection for another, rising out of kinship or personal ties. An example is maternal love for a child. And the second part of the definition is an attraction based on sexual desire, affection and tenderness felt by lovers. And the third uh, definition, getting a little more broad, includes it to others. It says, affection based on admiration, benevolence, or common interest. An example is love for his old schoolmates. And are any of these things bad? No. These are all good things, but is that all that love is? Is it just a feeling? Is it just something that you feel towards other people? It's truly not. Those, these things aren't all that love is. They're not bad, but they're not quite there. And we can see that played out in our culture because people are able to say they got married and then they fell out of love. Because that's love. If it's just a feeling, then yes, it's possible to fall out of love. But later on, it finally gets down to a definition that actually makes sense and is from a biblical standpoint. It says that uh, love is the unselfish, loyal, and benevolent concern for the good of another, such as the fatherly concern of God for humankind and brotherly concern for others, as well as a person's adoration of God. Now, the, even the Webster's Dictionary puts it near the bottom, but they even understand, and they even have to attest that this true source of love is God. And it's this uh, unselfish, loyal, and benevolent concern for one another. True love is unselfish. It's not focused on us. It's focused on the other. And so anytime that we want to look at something, what does the Bible say about this is a great way to start off. So if we want to understand what does it mean to be happy, we should look at what the Bible says about being happy. But uh, when, so when we're looking at love, we should look at what the Bible says about love. So rather than just grasping at straws, trying to understand just definitions, things like that, we should start with the Bible and what it says about love. So perhaps uh, if you're thinking about verses that pertain to love, before, besides 1 Corinthians 13, I gave you that one. Maybe uh, another well-known verse that comes to mind. John 3.16. This is the one that's held up at wrestling matches. This is the one that's there. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's love that prompted God to send his son Jesus into the world. So it's not just a mere feeling. It's something that takes action. It's something that takes a response. So it's, is there anything that's more powerful than this? Love that would send a father to send his only son to the world to die for the world. What could be greater than that love? There's nothing. And so I gave the Webster's definition of love, but the biblical definition of love uh, the, the most frequent translation of the word in the New Testament that's used for love is the word agape, which uh, translates to mean to love the undeserving despite disappointment and rejection. So it's not just a feeling, but it's actually loving not just people we like, not just other people, but to love the undeserving 
despite disappointment and rejection. So that definitely makes John 3.16 make some more sense. God loved us before we were uh, ever deserving of it. He loved us when we were undeserving, and he loves us even when we make mistakes and bad choices. And in Romans 5.8, Paul goes so far as to say, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 10, he says it even different. He says that we were enemies of God. So it's not just that we were passively away from God. We were direct enemies of God. We were actually not just uh, passively ignoring him. We were actually actively working against him and what he wanted to do in our lives. That's when Jesus died for us. That's when Jesus showed his love for us. And John, 1 John 3.16, another famous one says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. So the greatest example of love we have when we're trying to understand what love is, is Jesus. So if you want to understand what love is, look to Jesus. Jesus is our perfect example. Jesus came and lived the perfect life so that he was able to die the perfect death. That's what love looks like. It's sacrificial. He made the choice to do this despite our opposition to him. And if, you, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus on the cross, he is getting beaten. He's getting people slandering him, saying mean, hurtful things. And the words that he responds with is forgiveness and intercession for them. He pleads, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What kind of love does it take to be able to be not only forgiving, but praying to God to forgive those who are attacking you? That's the love of Jesus. So he chose to love us even as our sins nailed him to the cross. So love is a choice, not merely a feeling. Love involves action, not just emotion and not just words. So I have one more question for the, uh, for the this is for the theology slash Bible buffs here this morning. How many commands are there in the Old Testament? There's a lot more than 10. Okay, I'll give you guys a few hours to sit and count them all up. There's way more than that. According to the Talmud, which is the, the Hebrew uh, approved Bible, which is the Old Testament put together, all of their scholars, they say directly from God, there is 613 commandments in the Old Testament. So if you have a list of do's and do nots uh, that you go through every day, you're in trouble because that's a lot to try and go through. But if you want to be Old Testament about it, that's the way to go. And so when Jesus was on earth, he often, uh, he was a pretty controversial guy. He'd go places, he'd teach, he'd speak, and he often had the people who were uh, uh, professors of the law. They were the the people that were professional uh, Hebrew scholars, and they tried to trick him up sometimes. Some of them were called lawyers, sometimes they were called teachers, and they asked him to try and to trap him. They said, what's the most important commandment in the entire Bible? Of the 613 of our book of the law, which is the most important. And in Mark 12, Jesus is in the middle of being questioned, and he has someone ask this. And Mark, uh, who is an eyewitness to Jesus' life, says this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So Jesus summarizes all 613 of the laws, and the Beatles ripped them off. It's love me do, and then love other people. That's, that's Jesus' summary of the entire law, is love. So according to God, love is central to the Christian life. So the question for us to ask is, how do we apply these two commands to our life? What does this actually look like? Love is uh, something that we talk about all the time, but we don't quite get all the time. So maybe God gave us uh, a helpful list of to-dos. Maybe he gave us a list that we could look at and go, okay, maybe I can gauge myself off of this. Well, thankfully, God, in his infinite wisdom, has inspired the Apostle Paul, who is a pretty smart dude, to write this book of the Bible. And so in what is one of the most well-known passages of Scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul wrote this section of his letter on this topic, on love. So let's read the chapter that we'll be focusing on here today. I'm reading uh, out of the NIV, which is on the screen behind you. But whatever translation that you prefer, if you have a hard copy Bible or an iBible you want to swipe there, go ahead. So 1 Corinthians uh, 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only as a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What a beautiful passage of scripture. Paul is just so inspired by God to just cut right to the core of what love is. And I don't think that this passage isn't challenging for every single person here. I know as I read through this list, I go, oh, Jesus, help me. Well, easily angered. Uh Uh-oh. I have a toddler. I lost my patience. It's always 
trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's what Jesus is. That's our example of love. Now, in these first three verses, Paul builds the idea that someone could do amazing miracles. Someone could do amazing works of God. They can speak in tongues of men and angels. They can, they can say things that are powerful in languages they don't know. They can speak out God's word. But if they don't have any love, then it's just noise. God doesn't care. It doesn't build anyone up. It doesn't help anybody. And sorry to the drummers here, but the cymbal's noise. He said, that's all I hear is just That's my cymbal impersonation. Sorry, Derek. But it's, it's useless. Our words are useless unless they're said in love. So if speaking is not motivated by and done through love, it's just noise in God's ears. You could see future visions of what God has, his plans for the future. You could see these amazing things and be able to say, God has told me that this is happening. But if you're not doing it for the good of others, if you're doing it selfishly, if you're doing it to build yourself up, then he said it's useless. It does nobody any good. Or even if you give up everything you have, you sell your house, your cars, your retirement funds, and you give it all away for the poor, if you're doing it to build yourself up, if you're doing it so that somebody else will look at you and say, great job, if you're doing it to try and get recognition, then God says it's worthless. It doesn't mean anything. And the scary thing of this is we can say the right things, we could do the right things, we could be perfect people, but if we're doing it for ourselves rather than for loving God and loving other people, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of effort. And it's funny because uh, Jesus often uh, had interactions with the Pharisees, this group of religious people in the day who were really good at following rules. They were really, really good at it. He, they tithed not just their money, but they, he said they tithed their, their spices. So they would buy spices and then they would tithe them. And Jesus never criticizes them for their actions in, in doing these things. He says what they do is, is not bad. But what they do that's wrong is that they do it for the wrong motives. Their heart isn't loving and kind towards other people. They're doing it to build themselves up. So they prayed. He didn't criticize their praying. He criticized that they prayed on the street corner loudly so everyone would hear them. So they weren't doing it for the good of God and the good of others. They were doing it for themselves. So love sounds kind of important, right? In the next four verses, Paul then goes on to describe what love is and its characteristics. And we can begin to see that love is not about us. It's about other people. Uh, the Bible, the idea of self-love, isn't actually a concept in the Bible. It's actually about loving other people. And our culture wants to say, well, you love yourself, and then you love other people. And, that's, and I'm not saying it's wrong to take care of yourself and have boundaries, because that is actually the lo most loving thing, is to get rest so that you are able to help people. But if it's just about loving yourself and what's best for yourself, then that's not what Jesus is calling us to. So we are to love God with everything we have. And we're loved by God with this awesome, overwhelming love that we can't even begin to imagine. God cares about each one of us here this morning more than we will ever understand in this lifetime. 
God cares everything about you. He knows all of the hairs on your head. He knows you're sitting up and you're lying down. He knows everything about you, as Gerald reminded us this morning. God knows us all. And here's the, here's the crazy thing that, if you stop and think about it for a minute, you can't hide anything from God. He knows the worst about you. He knows the things that you, you don't even, wouldn't even want to share with anybody else. He knows everything good, bad, great, sad, that you've ever done, experienced, thought, and he still loves you. Now, if that's not love, I don't know what is. God knows everything you've ever done, good or bad, said, thought, anything, and he still loves you. He still says, you're my son, you're my daughter. You have faith in Jesus, that's all it takes. He loves you. That If that's not freeing, I don't know what is. That God knows the worst about you, and he still says you're loved. God knows the best about you, and he says, good job. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. That's it. God loves you. It's just faith. That's amazing. And so if we're not motivated by love, then, then what's the point? Paul says through, uh, in Corinthians. And uh, in Matthew 5.44, Jesus, who has forgiven us, gives us a challenge. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this is really easy to do, right? You know, when someone's attacking you, saying bad things about you, being mean to you, it's really easy just to go, yeah, I'm going to pray for you. That's what I want to do right now. No, that's, that's the hardest thing to do in that moment. But Jesus did it. And the reason he did it is because he had the love of the Father. He knew that I don't, I don't need these people to love me because I have God's love. And so this verse makes far more sense, or far more sense with the understanding of biblical love versus uh, the culture's understanding of love as a feeling. Because does anyone feel like praying for somebody who's attacking them? Or praying for somebody who's me- saying mean words to them? That would be impossible if what Jesus is calling us to is have warm, happy thoughts for the person who's being mean to you, for the person who cut you off in traffic, for the person who sweared at you, for the friends who betrayed you, for the loved one that said unthinkable, awful things to you. If Jesus is saying, have warm, happy thoughts for that person, is that, is that possible? No. But what Jesus is saying is pray for that person. Because there's something amazing that happens when you pray for somebody. Your heart changes. And I've, uh, I've had times when I've been in a discussion with Kirsten. And I know the Holy Spirit's saying, pray for her. Pray, pray right now. And uh, there's times that I listen, but there's probably more times I'd like to admit that I don't. Because I just want to be mad. Even though I know I'm wrong. Anyone else hear that stubborn-hearted sometimes? But... Just me, yeah, that's okay. Jesus loves me anyway. But we're called to pray for the person that we don't want to pray for. And it'll change your heart. It's amazing. There's something amazing that happens when you pray for the person that has done awful things to you. God changes your heart. You can't pray for someone genuinely and stay mad at them. Because God starts revealing himself and how he loves that person to you. And then in that moment, you start to realize, because the Holy Spirit brings it to mind, the things that you've done, that, have, uh, that you have done to God, or maybe you've done to that person. Because the funny thing is, we always judge other people 
uh, by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. There's a pastor named Kerry Newhoff who said that in a book I'm reading, but we judge other people by their actions. We say, no, what they did there was wrong, but we judge ourselves because we had good intentions. Isn't that double standard? But God calls us to pray for those who are hurting us. And uh, so the way the world loves is selfish. It says that I will love them if they love me first. I will help them if they, if they help me first. If they do it, then I'll, then I'll respond. But Paul says that this is a selfish, childish thing to do. He said in verse 11, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Most people outside of the, the redeeming work of Jesus in their lives, and even sometimes after we persist in that, are selfish. And it's something that we're actually born into. And there's no other age group that it's easier to see this in than in toddlers. Now, before we... Don't, get, don't pick on the toddlers too much, because adults sometimes just get better at coping this or using better language. But uh, toddlers are funny because uh, you start to realize that, oh, maybe original sin is original. Maybe they are born with it. Because uh, you don't have that long to be able to teach them to be selfish. And at toddler, the age of a toddler, they're finally able to actually assert their, their, uh, their intentions. They're actually able to start saying what they want or don't want. And uh, this is summarized really greatly in uh, a poem that I couldn't find who the author is, but I've heard it before, called The Toddler's Creed. It goes like this. If I want it, it's mine. If I give it to you and change my mind later, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If it's mine, it will never belong to anyone else, no matter what. If we are building something together, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. If it breaks or needs putting away, it's yours. That's the kind of selfishness that uh, toddlers show, but it's, it plays out in our lives sometimes too. Marriage can be a great example of this. Marriage is actually a mirror that reflects who you truly are. You know, when you're, uh, when you're dating or when you're uh, friends with people or even sometimes family, once you get older and move out from each other, you can really put on whoever you want to be. You can pretend you have it all put together. You can pretend you're always nice. You can pretend these things. But once you get married or uh, move in with somebody, you're uh, the same person that you wake up to. You don't have that prep time. You don't have the, uh, I get showered, I wear my nicest clothes, I uh, put on the fake happy nice smile. You just are who you are. And so that's often why uh, marriages strain and struggle is because you can't pretend that you aren't sinful sometimes. You can't pretend that you have it all put together because your spouse recognizes that. And often people get mad at their spouse because of things that they've done because they're feeling guilty or they're feeling sad. And so uh, uh, one great piece of marriage advice uh, that I've heard from a guy that does counseling all the time. He says this, Husbands, your job is to take care of your wife's needs. You look at her, see what she needs, see what would make her happy, see what, whatever she requires, and you focus on that. 
You focus on whatever she needs to fulfill herself. You do your best to take care of her. And the moments uh, that you have trouble is when you start looking at yourself instead. And then the reciprocal of this is wives. You look at your husbands and you see what do they need? What do they need to be happy? What do they need to be fulfilled? What do they need in order to be happy? And the marriage that works out best is when a husband and wife are each looking out to each other's needs. And maybe there are some seasons where the husband's more needy or the wife's more needy or whatever it is, but it balances out and you'll be happy as long as you're focused on the other. The minute that there's a problem is when you start looking at yourself instead of looking at them and go, well, I need this and they're not doing this. Or I did this and they didn't do what I wanted or whatever. And this, this plays out in all relationships. It plays out in friendships. It plays out in family relationships. If we're focusing on others and what the most loving thing to do for others is, then you won't be worried about what you need or want or like. And the important thing is to be in relationships, to be in friendships where it is reciprocal. If you're being used by all the time, if you're always giving out to others, but no one's ever taken care of your needs, then there's the issue. But this is what God is like with us. He's always looking out for what's best for us and the most loving thing. Not necessarily the thing we want, but the best things for us. And so it means loving people even if they haven't earned it. That's what the love of God is. So this unselfish love applies to all our relationships, our friends, our family, our parents, and even strangers that we meet. Just, uh, Jesus exemplifies who our neighbor, neighbor is in the Good Samaritan. You know, follow up by the, the lawyer who asked him uh, whether, what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And he says, uh, Jesus asked him the question, what do you think you need to do? And he says, well, love God with all your heart, body, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then the, this young lawyer, thinking he's smart, he says, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan. Now, Samaritans and Jews, they were essentially, even though they were distant relatives, they hated each other. They had nothing to do with each other. But the Samaritan takes care of a Jew, which was unheard of in those days. So he says, everyone's your neighbor. Your enemies, your friends, your actual neighbor, anyone you meet are people that you need to be loving towards. So it means loving those and working for the benefit of others, even if they look different, speak a different language, even if they... Uh, even if um, they may take advantage of you, it means doing the most loving thing, whatever it is. That's what it is. And so getting into the nuances of this would take far too long, but it's the most loving decision isn't always giving somebody what they ask for. It's doing what actually is best for that person. But the only reason that this is possible is because love is not a feeling, it's a choice. It's the choice to do the loving thing no matter what you feel like. Feelings often follow our choice. If you act loving towards someone, you'll often start to actually feel like loving that person. You'll actually form more affection with, you, with them. So how do we love others when we're mad at them or they're actively trying to hurt us? Again, in Matthew 5.44, Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So pray for those that are around you in your life, whether they're your enemy or your friend. Pray for them, and you'll start caring even more about their well-being. You'll start seeing them how God sees them. And so God reminds us gently of the ways that we have fallen short, but yet he loves us anyway. That's how we're able to be loving towards other people. So love is for the undeserving and the ill-deserving. 
Just as I said earlier, Jesus died for us, not just when we were passively against him, but while we were actually enemies for him. So as followers, as people who would say this morning, I want to follow after Jesus, that's what Jesus is calling you to, a sacrificial love, to serving the best in other people, to die to our own selfish wants and desires. So God is so good, and when we follow him, we will be fulfilled because his plans will give us what we need in life. And the actions that Paul describes in the, the first verses of chapter 3, when they're actually motivated by love, they become amazingly powerful things. So if you speak to other people words of love and blessing on other people, it has this powerful effect on their lives if it's done and motivated by love. If you, uh, if you go out and give what you have to the poor, if you sell the things that you have as prompted by God and the Holy Spirit sacrificially through love, it becomes an amazing blessing to other people. And so when we do the things that, that Jesus challenges us to do, and they're motivated by love, they have a multiplying effect. Not only do they bless other people, but they actually bless us. The Bible says that uh, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So it's actually such a blessing to be able to love other people. To see somebody who maybe was so distant from God receive the love of Jesus through you and through your actions and through your words, that is an amazing thing to be a part of. And I'm sure if I, if I open up the mic, there are many here this morning that could share story after story of doing this throughout their life. But it's just such an amazing opportunity to love other people. So Jesus spoke words of truth and power, and he calmed the storm. Jesus knew the future and said that he would come again. And Jesus showed faith when he wiggered the fig tree that didn't bear fruit. And Jesus gave up all he had in heaven in order to come to earth and then gave up his body for us. Now, friends, we must to go and love others, not by our own strength, not by our own efforts, but by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. None of us can do this on our own. Jesus said he doesn't leave us alone, but he gives us mighty counselor, wonderful love in the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit to work in and through us. And so my challenge for all of us here this morning and the response is simply this, to love God and to love others. Love God and love others. Let's all have the courage to pray for and show love to our enemies, our friends, our family, and most of all, to God. So this morning, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And this is something that Jesus gave to us in order to remember the great love that he showed for us. That's why I wanted to do it as a response to the message this morning. God created the world and he created humanity and he knew the future. He knew what was going to happen. He wasn't surprised by Adam and Eve's rebellion in the Garden of Eden. He knew that humanity would rebel against him. And he knew that what it would cost to reconcile rebellious humanity to himself. God knew that it would cost sending his son Jesus to the earth to live the perfect life and then die the perfect sacrificial death. God knew that. And he still chose to create you. He still chose to create me. He knew the pain that would cost him. He knew the effort it would take, and yet he chose to love us anyway.
Not because it felt easy, but because he wanted to. He chose us. And so God created the world in order to prove to the world he loves them. And so even though it would cause Jesus incredible and excruciating physical, relational, psychological, emotional, and spiritual pain, he still chose to go through it. And our sins nailed Jesus to the cross. But do you know what kept him there? It was his love. His love is what kept Jesus on the cross. His love is what was able to make him say to people, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what, that, what they're doing. They don't know the pain that they're causing us. Jesus' love kept him on the cross. So no matter your personal experience or your familiar, uh, familiarity with God or lack thereof, whatever it is, I would pray that you would respond this morning to God's great love for you. He loves you more than you will ever possibly understand in this life. And he chose uh, to give us the cross as an example for him. And sin is not something light and easy just to gloss over. Sin is so serious that it costs Jesus his life. But Jesus tells us to ask him for forgiveness, and he forgives us. So whatever your life has been like recently, whether you've been following Jesus well, and have very little or nothing that you feel like needs to be forgiven, or whether you have much to be forgiven. During this time, let us reflect on what God has done for us. And may we respond gratefully to his body that was broken for us, and his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sin. So do not reject or run away from Jesus' love. Accept it. And as the ushers pass out the element this morning, we'll partake of communion together as I lead afterwards. But uh, as the ushers come forward and we prepare, would you please join me in prayer? Father God, I just pray that you would reveal your love to us this morning. May we all not leave here the same way that we came. May we leave having a greater understanding and appreciation for your love for us. The way that you have empowered us through your Holy Spirit to love others, even when it feels impossible. May you forgive us of our sins. Help us to make the choice to love others the way that you have loved us. We are able to forgive because you have forgiven us. We are able to be kind because you have shown kindness to us. We are able to persevere because you persevered on the cross. Please speak to each one of us this morning through your Holy Spirit. Aid us as we try to walk after you, Jesus. Thank you for all you have done and all you will do in each of us this coming week. And Lord, I just, I thank you for the, the ability to celebrate communion. And this is a celebration. Jesus, even as we seriously reflect on what we have done and the ways that we have maybe fallen short and making bad decisions, may we celebrate your great love for us. And may we be people of changed hearts, of hearts of love, not of stone hearts that would seek to do the best for others and to love you and others with our whole hearts, Jesus. So I thank you, and in your mighty and precious name we pray. Amen.